You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part eight in our series on Captain James Cook. Last time, we got Cook home from his second epic expedition. The man was now seen as one of the world's greatest explorers. Cook had gotten a cushy gig at the Greenwich Naval Hospital and went to work writing his account of the expedition. He was well off financially, and he and his wife were now welcome amongst the upper crust of British society. They went to balls and galas and dinners, rubbing elbows with lords and ladies and academics and politicians. Now, that was great, but it was said that Cook had come back from his last voyage fatigued and worn down, which is understandable as he was now 47 years old. During the expedition, he had had at least one extended illness. He was described as detached from his crew, cantankerous, and more obsessive about his mission. Meanwhile, the British Admiralty had some exciting exploring in the works. They were interested in finding the Northwest Passage, a new, faster route between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Attempts to find the passage from the eastern side of North America had been stymied. The thought was that maybe the route could be found by searching from the western side of the continent. Great Britain very much wanted to be the nation that found this route, which would offer lots of power and money. Other nations were interested as well. The Russians were pressing down from Alaska while the Spanish were moving up from Mexico. And the French were also a threat, as they had lost much of their colonial empire in the recent Seven Years' War, and were looking for other opportunities. And thus a new expedition was proposed by the Admiralty. The cover for the voyage was to return Omai, the native translator brought to England, back to his home near Tahiti. The expedition would do this, then sail on to North America and search for the Northwest Passage. The British government offered a £20,000 prize to the man who found the fabled trade route. Well, as we discussed last time, Cook eventually accepted the job in January of 1776, he just couldn't stand the idea of someone else going off and getting all the glory and the money. And frankly, he was bored with life on shore. He yearned to return to sea, where he was all-powerful and doing work he viewed as important. Plus, Cook wanted to build on his legacy as one of history's great explorers. He was aware that, despite all that he had done, he didn't have a signature discovery or deed to his credit. Many of the places he had been to, Tahiti, Australia, New Zealand, were not technically new discoveries. Sure, he had some small, often desolate islands to his credit, but nothing major. He wanted people to talk about him like they did Christopher Columbus, the man who discovered America, or Ferdinand Magellan, the man who had first circled the world. To find the Northwest Passage, that's the exact kind of thing Cook felt would put him in the same category of men such as Columbus, Magellan, and Da Gama. 
And so Cook was on board for voyage number three. The departure date was set for April of 1776, but it was pretty obvious to everyone that Cook's small fleet would not be ready by then. For this third voyage, Cook had two ships. The first was Resolution, which we know well. While it was in rough shape upon its return to England, Resolution was at Deptford getting a full refitting. The second ship was Discovery, which I will describe at this time. Discovery was a Whitby-built cargo ship, just like all of Cook's vessels. She was 91 feet long and 27 feet wide, or 28 by 8 meters, making her the smallest of all the ships that Cook had sailed with. She had eight cannons and a crew of 70. Her captain was Lieutenant Charlie Clerk. Clerk was 33 years old. He was admired by everyone and seen as an amiable, yet brave and capable officer. In spite of Clerk's reputation as a womanizer and carouser, Cook trusted the man. Clerk had been considered to lead the expedition himself before Cook stepped in and took the job. No doubt that stung, but it doesn't seem to have damaged his relationship with Cook, who he admired. Clerk's crew included astronomer William Bailey, Lieutenant Jem Burney, and midshipman George Vancouver, all from the previous expedition. There was also a gardener, David Nelson. The gardener was on board at the request of naturalist Joseph Banks, who was privy to Cook's North American mission. Banks was eager to get specimens from the continent's western coast. As for resolution, Cook was thrilled to have back Lieutenant John Gore as a second-in-command. Gore was just a year younger than Cook and had proven to be a good officer and friend on the first expedition. Resolution had a crew of 112 men, including 20 Marines. Thirteen of the crew had been on the previous expedition, although only four of those had been on both of Cook's voyages. As for discovery, ten of the men had been on the last voyage, but only one had been part of both expeditions. That latter person was Charlie Clerk. Some of the officers on Resolution included Lieutenants James King and John Williamson. King was 26 years old, well-read and well-educated. He had studied astronomy, so he would handle all the astronomy-related things on Resolution. King was described as a sensitive, effeminate man, not the kind of person you find in the rugged world of the Royal Navy. But the man had such a positive and engaging personality, nearly everyone loved him. Lieutenant Williamson, an Irishman, was an odd selection as he was bad-tempered and erratic. He would become widely despised by most of the crew. One person not on this expedition was Isaac Smith, Cook's wife's cousin. Smith had proven himself to be an able seaman and leader and was given his own command. He served in the Royal Navy for many years, reaching the rank of Rear Admiral. In retirement, he shared a home with his cousin, Elizabeth, Cook's wife. He died in 1831 at the age of 78. Some others on resolution included Master William Bly, who would later become famous for his part in the Mutiny on the Bounty. Bly, just 22, was a talented cartographer, surveyor, and navigator, but he was also impatient and ill-tempered. He had been personally recommended for the job by Lord Sandwich. Two civilians on resolution included John Weber, a 25-year-old painter, and Omai, the young man whom Cook was returning to the other side of the world. Omai brought with him all sorts of stuff to try and recreate the world he had found in England. This included kitchenware, clothing, furniture, wine, muskets, ammunition, and gunpowder. He even had a coat of chainmail and a complete suit of medieval armor. As a note, Cook's crew was not quite up to the standards of his first two voyages, and that is because there was a war going on in the Americas. This meant sailors were in high demand. They just weren't sitting around waiting for a job. So, as I mentioned, getting the two ships together took more time than the Admiralty wanted, and the April departure date was pushed back. One of the reasons for the delay was a new water distilling apparatus was installed on each ship, which was a long and difficult process. And then there was just all the work of refitting resolution, obtaining provisions and supplies, and adding crew. 
In normal times, this was work done by Cook, but this time he was also engaged on other fronts. In the first half of 1776, Cook sat for three different portraits, including one by Sir Nathaniel Dance, one of the leading artists of the time. Also, Cook poured over any documentation he could get his hands on regarding earlier explorations of the western coast of North America. Another thing was Cook's social calendar. We can't forget that Cook was a famous man. He was officially a captain. He was in demand in the homes and in the salons of the loftiest members of English society. Cook enjoyed this. He was the son of a farm laborer. To chat with scientists, nobles, merchants, and the men and women of high society was a testament to his accomplishments. And then there was Cook's book. Ah, the book. That was a bit of a mess. As we discussed last time, Cook was appalled by the official, and I'm using air quotes there, book about his first expedition, and so he was determined to pen the story of the second expedition to tell the truth and protect and promote his own legacy. Well, Johann Forster, the botanist on the second expedition, had other ideas. It seems that some at the Royal Society had told him that he could write the official account of the voyage. Well, in the end, it was decided that Cook would write the first volume, an account of the journey and the nautical observations. Forster would then follow with a second volume, focusing on the natural history elements, plus the ethnology and languages of the people encountered. The first volume, The Narrative of the Voyage, was considered the really valuable option. This was the story that would sell, meaning a financial windfall for Cook. As for the proposed second volume by Forster, well, Lord Sandwich at the Admiralty didn't like the initial chapters. This led to a dispute, and Forster never published his official volume. However, Forster would do an end run on Cook and the Admiralty when he had his son, George, release his own narrative titled A Voyage Around the World, using his father's journals as his main source material. It was released in two volumes, six weeks ahead of Cook's narrative. However, it would be Cook's version that would end up selling well. I talk about this because it is part of James Cook's story, but also because it leads me down a sidetrack, which I enjoy taking from time to time. Forster later ended up publishing his own version of Cook's expedition, titled Observations Made During a Voyage Around the World. Both his and his son's versions were not big hits, but they had been recognized as quality works. Forster eventually moved to Germany, where he became a professor and a director at a city botanical garden. He died in 1798. That's all fine and good, but the big reason I wanted to take this sidetrack was not Johann Forster, but his son, George. George Forster sort of gets lost in the background of our story. He was only 18 at the time the voyage began, but he would go on to have a fascinating life. He became one of the central figures of the Enlightenment in Germany, and his writings were so innovative, he is considered one of the founders of modern scientific travel literature. George Forster was not only able to write scientifically accurate and objective prose, but he could also make it exciting and easy to read. He became a member of the Royal Society at the age of 22 and went on to become a writer and professor and even a revolutionary in Paris. He died in 1794 at the age of 39 due to an illness. As I said, the man led a fascinating life and his journey around the world with Cook was the start of it all. Okay, sidetrack done. So, James Cook was a busy man as he prepared for his third voyage. He's got social demands, he's got his book, he's getting his crew together and adding supplies and gear. All of this in a compressed time frame. And when that happens, something often slips through the cracks. And this time, it was the refit of resolution. On Cook's first two voyages, he had personally seen to the updates done to his vessels. The shipyard at Deptford was notorious for its corruption. Subpar work, supplies, and parts were commonplace. Thus, it really paid off to keep a close eye on the work done to your ship. 
and because of the war in America, the shipyards of England were pressed hard to build and refit vessels at a fast rate, which meant some slipshod work. With so much else on his plate, Cook wasn't as attentive as he should have been. It might mean that he thought that the work done on resolution would be first rate, simply because he was James Cook. I mean, who's not going to do a good job for James Cook? No matter Cook's lack of oversight with the resolution's refit will cause a lot of headaches in the future. So Cook's April departure date came and went, and now he took aim for a summer departure. In the meantime, Cook's wife gave birth to another child in May, a boy named Hugh, after Hugh Palisar, Cook's friend and mentor. Cook would get to spend two months with the boy before he set sail. Regarding his wife, Lord Sandwich at the Admiralty promised to look after Elizabeth while Cook was gone. He had done so on previous voyages, and Cook took comfort knowing his wife was being watched over. Cook said goodbye to Elizabeth on June 25th, and five days later brought resolution to Plymouth Sound. There, final preparations were made for sailing. Men were added to the crew, as well as food and supplies. There was a lot of livestock, as the government thought it was good to try and establish some breeding stock on the Polynesian islands. This included hogs, cows, horses, sheep, rabbits, and goats. It was thought that if the islanders were given all these great domestic animals, they would spend their time caring for them and raising them, which would diminish the need for the warfare that was commonplace. Regarding food and drink, the ship was packed with all the typical things. Rum, brandy, wine, beer, salt pork, sauerkraut, biscuits, and so forth. Also, there was a healthy supply of cold weather gear, as Cook was expected to reach the Arctic regions. And so, by early July, Cook was ready to depart, but it seems the expedition was missing a key player, Charlie Clerk, the captain of Adventure. Let's talk about this situation. When it came time to sail Adventure from the shipyard on the Thames down to Plymouth, Lieutenant Jem Burney would handle the job. And the reason for this was that Charlie Clerk was missing. Well, not missing, just unable to join the expedition. And that's because he was in prison. This was all due to Clerk's brother, Sir John Clerk. Sir John owed a lot of money, and Charlie had agreed to be responsible for that debt. Well, Sir John sailed off to the West Indies, that debt not paid off, and thus Charlie was now legally responsible for it. Trouble was, he didn't have that kind of money, thus he was hauled off to debtor's prison. It seems crazy that this happened, a debt delaying a major naval expedition, but that's exactly the situation. It would take some time, but by the end of July, Clerk got released or escaped, I've read different stories. Some sources indicate that Lord Sandwich at the Admiralty bribed people to have Clerk set free. No matter, once he was out of prison, Clerk raced down the Plymouth, took command of adventure, and set sail. So all seems good, right? Well, no. Not for Charlie Clerk. He had escaped prison, but prison had left him with a deadly present, tuberculosis. He had contracted the illness while incarcerated. Thus, there will be some tough times ahead for the amiable Clerk. As a note, Cook departed England on July 12, 1776. He left orders for Clerk to rendezvous with him at Cape Town as soon as possible. So regarding Cook's orders, he was to proceed to Tahiti and drop off Omai with his people. Also, he was told to cultivate friendships with the natives, collect plants and animal specimens, and claim any new lands for his majesty. It was standard stuff. Along the way, Cook was ordered to sail south of the Cape of Good Hope, which is the tip of Africa, and find out more about some islands discovered by the French a few years earlier in the Indian Ocean. After dropping off Omai, Cook was then to proceed to the western coast of North America, which was called New Albion by the British. This was the name given to it by explorer Francis Drake nearly 200 years earlier. From there, the expedition was to move up the coast and probe to the latitude of 65 degrees north or higher if the ice allowed it. 
65 degrees, by the way, is way up into Alaska and marks where Alaska and Siberia are closest, aka the Bering Strait. Along the way, he was, quote, carefully to search for and to explore such rivers or inlets as may appear to be of a considerable extent and pointing towards Hudson Bay or Baffin Bay, end quote. Baffin Bay, by the way, is on the northeastern extreme of North America, between Canada and Greenland. Hudson Bay is the big body of water in the north you see on a map of Canada. It is in the middle and slightly eastern part of the country. To reach either body of water from the west would mean success in the search for the Northwest Passage. If all that failed, Cook was to go, quote, in further search of a northeast or northwest passage from the Pacific Ocean into the Atlantic Ocean or the North Sea, end quote. A little explanation here. The orders mention the North Sea, and what that means is that Cook, if he saw the opportunity, was to sail west above Russia to try and reach Europe through what is called the Northeast Passage. No one had ever done this before. And I want to point out that the Admiralty was sending another vessel in search of the Northeast Passage, albeit from the opposite direction. This expedition consisted of a single ship under the command of Dick Pickersgill, who had been with Cook on his first two voyages. Pickersgill was to sail from England, go north of Norway, and then sail along the Siberian coast until he reached the Bering Sea. The idea was that he could rendezvous with Cook in the summer of 1778. Regarding that expedition, I will say right now, it was a disaster. The ship was unsuitable for the ice, the men lacked proper clothing, and Pickergill's excessive drinking caused all sorts of issues. It was an utter failure, the expedition being forced to return early. And so, south went resolution, and it was not long before signs of shoddy workmanship reared their unwelcome head. Lieutenant John Williamson said that the rain poured into the officers' cabins, which he called, quote, a barbarous neglect. And that was not all. The ship's storerooms leaked in rough weather, ruining hay and corn meant to sustain the livestock. After a stop in the Madeira Islands, Cook put in at the Canary Islands for three days to try and address some of these issues. After the Canaries, Cook steered toward the Cape Verde Islands, and there the ship almost sailed onto some rocks near Boa Vista. It was an odd moment when Cook, who was on watch at the time, made a mistake judging the distance to some rocks. He caught his error at the last minute, and a disaster was avoided. It was a rare thing for Cook to make such a mistake. Some people pointed to it as proof that he'd lost his edge as a sailor. No matter, Resolution continued south, crossing the equator on September 1st. By the way, Cook continued with the tradition of forcing anyone who had never crossed the equator to be dunked in the ocean, or give up their rum ration for a few days. William Bly hated the practice, sarcastically saying they may as well add in an execution to add some fun to the day. Interestingly, a couple of weeks later, Charlie Clerk skipped the tradition aboard Discovery. Instead, he gave everyone double booze rations and just let everyone drink and have fun. For resolution, the voyage to Cape Town was fraught with incidents related to the ship's refit. Cook was caught more than once cursing the workers at Deptford. The rigging and sails were subpar, and the leaks were so bad, Cook had to stop in the middle of the ocean and get his caulkers to work patching up the vessel. Another thing to note is that Cook continued the rigid diet for the crew that he had developed to fight scurvy. This included food such as fresh meat and sauerkraut, and as before, he insisted the officers eat the same food in front of the men. Charlie Clerk, who had seen how effective Cook's dietary routine was on a long ocean voyage, ordered his men to keep to the same program. Resolution put into Cape Town on October 17th. Discovery followed two weeks later. Once in port, Cook sent his livestock ashore to get fodder and some exercise. The only problem with this was when some local dogs got in with the sheep and killed a bunch of them. Cook acquired some new sheep from the locals, but they were not deemed to be of the same quality as those that had been brought from England. 
In Cape Town, Resolution went through another refit, the caulkers and carpenters working full-time. Cook enjoyed his time in Cape Town as he was now a respected gentleman of society, going to dinners and excursions and wine tastings with the city's elites. The men of Resolution and Discovery were able to relax and visit the bars and brothels. The two ships, now together for the first time, departed Cape Town on December 1st, 1776. The six weeks in Cape Town had been good for Resolution and her crew. The ship was now in better shape, and the weeks of relaxation had rejuvenated the men. Plus, the addition of Discovery gave the expedition two good ships and two first-rate captains. The officers and men of the expedition were confident, and their spirits were high. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. James Cook and his two ships sailed east, their destination, Tahiti. But he did have a minor task to conduct along the way and that was to investigate a couple of groups of islands recently found by French mariners. He was to find out if these places even existed and assess their value. This included checking out if the islands offered harbors, timber, or food or water. The first group of islands were supposedly about 1,600 miles, or 2,600 kilometers, southeast from the southern tip of Africa. Cook reached these islands on December 12th. These were the Crozet Islands, a small archipelago named after French explorer Jules Crozet, who Cook had met in Cape Town on his way home on his second voyage. The islands were not much. They were desolate, uninhabitable, and littered with dangerous shoals. There were lots of seals, and the waters were filled with whales, which would, in the future, offer opportunities for other men. But for Cook, that was not much. Cook's next stop was another 800 miles to the southeast, or 1,300 kilometers. These were the Kerguelen Islands, discovered in 1772. This is a collection of more than 300 rocky, treeless, and mountainous islands. On December 25th, Cook and his ships anchored at a place he named Christmas Harbor on Desolation Island. Cook, by the way, was good about using the local native names for a location, but when forced to name places himself, he was not very original. Anyhow, there was plenty of water here, plus penguins and seals. This allowed the ships to stock up on food and blubber. Christmas dinner was roast penguin and double rations of spirits. 
Interesting note, one of the expedition's members found on the island a bottle with a note inside. It was from the original French explorers who had discovered the island a few years earlier. Cook added his own letter to the bottle, listing the name of his ships and the date they had been there. He then resealed it and left it on a stone cairn. He also raised a British flag. Cook stayed in the Kerguelen Islands for nearly a week. William Bly sailed around mapping as much as he could, demonstrating to Cook his outstanding abilities. The odd thing about staying so long here was that Cook was behind schedule by about a month. He was headed to Polynesia and then had to go to North America and sail up the coast to the Arctic by next summer. To stay for a week amongst a bunch of desolate islands was an odd decision. Speculation is that Cook knew his timetable was too aggressive and thus he was happy to fall behind so that he could eventually just do things on a timeline he felt was reasonable. No matter, the two ships set sail for New Zealand on December 31st, 1776. Cook sailed south of Australia and made good progress thanks to favorable winds and currents. However, on January 19th, two of Resolution's masts tore away in a storm. Cook blamed this on the poor quality of materials used in Deptford. Others say that Cook had overstressed the mast by employing too much sail. If so, it was a rare mistake by Cook. Cook thus altered course to Tasmania, pulling into Adventure Bay, which is on the northeast side of Tasmania. This is where Furneaux and Adventure had landed on the previous expedition. The ship stayed there for only four days, taking on supplies, before heading on to New Zealand. Cook passed up the chance to explore the waters between Tasmania and Australia. If he had done so, he would have discovered the two landmasses were not connected. Resolution and Discovery reached New Zealand 11 days later, pulling in the ship Cove in Queen Charlotte Sound. Now, Cook knew that the specter of the Maori attack and then eating of some of Furneaux's men a couple of years earlier hovered over their presence. The Maori were afraid the English were there for revenge and only nervously approached the British. And Cook and his men were cautious, knowing the grisly fates of their comrades. Due to this tense atmosphere, Cook ordered everyone to keep to their base, unless with an armed escort. It was helpful that Cook had Omai as a translator. And so, extensive refits of both ships were begun, including the masts. By the way, Cook did find a Maori chief that he trusted and coaxed out of him the full story of the deaths of the men from adventure. It seems the Maori had stolen some food. The British had been drinking and got upset at the thievery. A quarrel ensued and two natives were killed. The ten sailors were then overwhelmed by the Maori and killed for their actions. A local man, Kahura, was held responsible for the attack. Cook thus put the incident down to drunken sailors overreacting to the thieving of the native people. It was a difficult moment for Cook as his men now knew pretty much exactly what had happened and they knew the ringleader of the massacre. Many of the expedition called for revenge. But Cook held his fire. To him, the incident was in the past. He believed Furneaux's men had probably done something to incite the Maori. Also, Cook needed good relations with the natives so that he could refit his ship and collect supplies. His decision to not seek some sort of revenge did not sit well with many of his men. No matter, the relations between the English and the Maori improved, the two sides trading on a regular basis. Cook even gave the Maori a pair of goats and hogs for breeding purposes, as well as rabbits. Resolution was not ready to sail from Queen Charlotte Sound until late February. By now, Cook and his officers knew there was no way they would reach the Arctic regions this summer. The two ships departed on February 25th. Almost immediately, they ran into unfavorable winds and storms, making the voyage north a slow and frustrating affair. A few notes. First, the water distillation machines installed on both Discovery and Resolution were proving to be a failure. Thus, water had to constantly be managed. Due to the storms, the voyage towards Tahiti took longer than anticipated, and on April 21st, 
The water ration was cut to two quarts per day for each man. Second, there were thefts of food on resolution, and the culprits could not be found. Cook resorted to a rather punitive approach, cutting the meat ration several times for the entire crew. This angered the men, and at one point they refused, as a collective, to eat any meant to protest the punishment. This was an odd decision by Cook, punishing everyone for the crimes of a few, and it set up a battle of wills between Cook and his men. Ultimately, Cook would have to relent in the face of the crew's unified front and drop the matter, the culprits never found. As I said, this was an odd moment. To defy Cook meant to face his wrath, which was legendary. Yet here the men were doing exactly that. Perhaps it was Cook just losing his touch with the common sailor, or maybe it reflects a growing hardness in Cook. Maybe he just didn't have the time and patience like he did on his earlier voyages. The difficult thing is that we see Cook, at times, unable to reel in his worst excesses. Due to the storms, Resolution and Discovery were pushed west, and instead of reaching Tahiti, came to the Tongan Islands on May 1st, 1777. The fleet now had food, including yams, breadfruit, plantains, and pork, and water was no longer an issue. Cook went on to spend the next two and a half months in the Tongan Islands, including a full month on Tonga Tapu, the region's biggest island. Any sort of sense of urgency was gone. The leisurely pace did allow Dr. Anderson and Lieutenant King to study the people and plant life, and William Bly was out every day surveying and drawing the islands. Thieving amongst the Tongan people had not been overly problematic on the previous voyages, but the longer the English hung around, the worse it got, and Cook's frustration only grew. With each theft, Cook increased the severity of punishments, and it is here that we really start to see the change that had taken hold of James Cook. It wasn't long before islanders caught stealing were tied to a tree and lashed, and not just a few smacks, but dozens. One man was given five dozen lashes for his crime, and it's only going to get worse. Cook approved the cutting off of the ears of thieves, and then the men were authorized to fire their weapons, filled with grape shot, at offenders. Others were beaten with oars, and one man was stabbed with a boat hook. When the thieving didn't stop, Cook began to demand a ransom when a thief was caught. A man, for instance, might only be freed if his family paid a ransom of a hog. Charlie Clerk took to shaving half of a man's beard and head, a way to humiliate them. Now, we know about this because we have journals from various members of both ships talking about the treatment of the islanders. It frustrated many of the crew, who had no desire to punish these people, who were mostly likable and friendly. But here the British were, cutting off ears and flogging men for minor offenses. The crazy part is that Cook would turn around and try and be nice to the natives. One day he'd flog a man, and the next day he'd have the ship's band give a performance to the Tongans. And Cook persisted in the belief that the Tongans loved him, calling some of the described events as minor incidents. Cook's anger was especially roused when he felt the islanders were disrespecting him. An example of this was when Cook gave three different chiefs a variety of animals as gifts. He told the chiefs that these animals were for breeding and should not be killed. That was all good, but not soon after, some islanders stole a goat. Cook was outraged. He had just given these chiefs some animals, and now these people had the gall to steal another from him? In response, Cook would take several of the chiefs hostage, not releasing them until the animal was returned. All of this would lead to a plot to kill Cook. The plan was to lure Cook and many of the crew ashore, and then ambush and kill them at a big celebration. The islanders would then loot resolution and all of its stuff. The plot, however, fell apart when some of the chiefs backed out. Cook never found out about the deadly plan, and if he had, who knows what he might have done. We know about the plot due to stories told to later Europeans visiting the region. A few observations about Cook's time in the Tongan Islands. 
First, Cook's decisions were no longer nuanced and thoughtful, but very reactionary and punitive, even cruel. In some ways, he seems to have bought into the hype about himself. He was James Cook. People should listen to him, and if they didn't, bonk on the head. Second, in a lot of ways, what was happening at this time was unnecessary. Cook was not really supposed to be in the Tongan Islands. He was supposed to be bringing Omai to Tahiti and then be off to North America. But here he was, sitting around Tonga Tapu or wherever. Heck, he could have at least gone off and explored new places. Fiji, a place not yet visited, but known to Cook, was only a few days' voyage away. The truth is that the longer the British stayed in a place, the greater chance there was for conflict. This was pretty much the way it had always gone for Cook. He knew this, yet he lingered in Tonga and allowed it to happen. Third, you might be wondering what were the thoughts of Cook's officers. What were they doing at this time? Were they saying, hey boss, what's up? Why aren't we leaving or whatever? And the answer is they were mostly clueless. Cook always played things close to the vest. He didn't confide in his officers unless absolutely necessary. There were orders to be read in case he died, but for the most part the men, even Cook's second-in-command, Charlie Clerk, didn't know their boss's plans. And Clerk didn't dare ask. That was not how Cook operated. The fourth thing I'll mention is speculation about Cook's state of mind and body. Historians and writers have speculated for centuries about this supposed change in Cook. Why was he suddenly such a dictatorial curmudgeon? I'll say right now, we really don't know for sure. Some speculate Cook was suffering from an illness or it had a seizure or attack. I've seen suggestions that he was afflicted with anxiety, depression, roundworm infection, or vitamin B deficiency, just to name a few. Others say he had simply grown into an arrogant jerk. As he had risen to a point of great power, he had become lazy and irrational and lost his ambition and sense of curiosity, as well as compassion. Again, we really don't know the answer, but we do know that Cook had changed. On his earlier voyages, he had been willing to use force in extreme situations, but he never did such things as cut off the ears of the natives or flog them. Now that was commonplace. No matter, Cook and his ships departed the Friendly Islands, which weren't that friendly anymore, on July 17, 1777. Tahiti was the next stop. The arrival at Tahiti resulted in a big celebration, the natives swarming out to the ships to greet the British. A few notes. First, a reminder. Cook's primary job was to return Omai to his home. However, I want to remind you that Omai was not a native of Tahiti. He actually wanted to return to Huehine, which is about 100 miles west of Tahiti, so Cook still had that job to do. Second, Cook was alarmed to find out that the Spanish had been to Tahiti, and they had built a fort on the island, and even left two priests to convert the islanders to Christianity. The priests had left the island with another visiting ship, so they were gone. Cook went to this fort and found it abandoned and falling apart. There was a big wooden cross there, words carved in it claiming the island for the Spanish crown. Cook had it all torn down and set up his own cross, carving the years 1767, 1769, 1773, 1774, and 1777 into it, the years of his visits, as well as Samuel Wallace. This was to emphasize the early and repeated visits of the British to the island, a way to refute any Spanish claims. Also, word came from the natives that the Spanish had returned and were anchored on the other side of the island. Cook ordered his ships into combat mode, all the cannons hauled out of the hold and readied for battle. However, upon investigating, the rumors were unfounded. Third, the island of Maria, which is directly to the west, was on the brink of war with Tahiti. And this leads us to Omai. The young man had returned to Tahiti as a celebrity, and thus he set himself up as a powerful leader. He had all sorts of gifts to buy influence, plus he had weapons and armor. It would have been impressive, and he drew some followers. Now, Cook decided to sail over to Maria and check out the situation. Omai and his followers came with the British. 
On the island, Cook found the local king friendly and trading began. Now, everything seemed fine until the king of the island requested two goats from Cook. Cook said no, but gave the man some valuable items instead. Coincidentally, shortly thereafter, two goats were stolen while grazing ashore. This caused Cook to fall into a rage. Again, he felt he was being disrespected. He had given the islanders some great stuff, yet they still stole from him. Cook had two of the islanders' prize canoes seized and announced to the natives that if the goats were not returned, he'd burn them. One goat reappeared, but that was not enough for Cook, who ordered a full-scale military operation readied against the islanders. Cook threatened to burn houses and canoes if the goat was not returned. Well, no goat appeared, and Cook went through with his threat, burning more than 20 homes. And you know what? Cook wasn't done. And said if the goat wasn't returned, he'd destroy every single canoe on the island. Still, no goat appeared. And thus, Cook burned 20 canoes and more than 100 paddles. This was months and months of labor for the islanders. After that, the goat finally turned up and the reprisals ended. This is really astonishing behavior from Cook, destroying homes and the livelihood of hundreds of people, all for the crimes of a couple of thieves, and all for a freaking goat. Cook downplays the incident, writing in his journal it was all a, quote, rather unfortunate affair, end quote. Well, it was much more than that, and the continuation of a disturbing trend. Cook, who many have lauded for his humane and thoughtful treatment of the natives in the South Pacific, was demonstrating a violent streak that he'd only hinted at on his earlier voyages. He was having men flogged, ears cut off, homes burned, and he was okay with destroying the lifeblood of the natives over at Goat. It was, in all honesty, cruel. So, what was going on? Again, we can only speculate. Was there a health issue, such as a seizure that was affecting his judgment? Or had he simply become arrogant and imperious? He was James Cook. He was God to the men of his ships and the natives of these islands. Did he believe that the islanders were beneath him and his men? Again, I can't answer that question. I can only say that Cook's actions were very different than those from his first two expeditions. In early October, the expedition headed west, their destination Huehine, which they reached on October 12th. There, Cook bought Omai a nice plot of land, and he had his men build him a small house. The use of nails was kept to a minimum, as they would only be stolen. The home was stocked with all the furniture, kitchenware, and items brought from England. Omai's new estate had a garden, as well as a paddock with two horses, some pigs, and goats. Omai wanted it to mimic an English manor. Regarding Omai, Cook expressed doubt that the young man would do well in his new home, and he was mostly right. Omai had a moment of notoriety when he helped repel an invasion of Huehine, his musket playing a key role in the fight. However, he would develop a fever and die two years later in 1779. And so, with Omai resettled, Cook and his two ships departed the Society Islands on December 8, 1777. They sailed directly north, their destination the western coast of North America. The expedition was ten months behind schedule. A couple more notes. First, before departing the region, Charlie Clerk, as well as William Anderson, the surgeon on resolution, requested to stay in Tahiti. The reason was both had tuberculosis, and it was clear they were not doing well. At this time, there was no cure for tuberculosis. The best thing for a person was to try to recuperate in a warm, sunny climate. Both Clerk and Anderson had struggled when sailing through the cold southern waters across the Indian Ocean to the Crozet and Kerguelen Islands. And here they were, heading for the Arctic. Thus, they asked to stay behind. Cook denied the request, as he needed them. Both would accept the decision and slog along, doing their job as best they could. But it was clear that neither was well. A second note is about the crew of the two ships. The men had loved Tahiti and the surrounding islands. In fact, that's exactly why many had signed up. 
Yet now they were heading north, the cold and unknown ahead of them. This meant the crews of Resolution and Discovery were despondent, and morale was low. No matter, the two ships continued north, covering hundreds, then thousands of miles of ocean. A few days before Christmas, the men sighted tropical birds, a sign land was near. And then on Christmas Eve, 1777, land was sighted. It was a small island to be named Christmas Atoll. Here the ship stopped to fish and hunt turtles. The small island had lots of turtles, and the men went on to capture 300 of them, each weighing nearly 100 pounds. This meant good food for the crew. Cook stayed at Christmas Atoll, which today is called Kiriti Mati, until January 2nd, 1778. He left a letter in a bottle with the date and the names of his ships, claiming the island for Great Britain. Cook then pushed north. A little over two weeks later, on January 18th, with the ships running dangerously low on water, Midshipman James Ward let out a yell from the deck, land. One island was spotted, and then another. As the ships neared, the men saw natives on the shore, and soon canoes were coming out to greet them. The initial contact was tentative, the islanders wary of the British ships. The crew, however, knew the drill, and gained their trust by lowering them nails and cloth. To the surprise of the British, the islanders spoke a Polynesian dialect. Lieutenant Jem Burney, who knew the language pretty well, asked about the islands. The natives rattled off the names of the islands in the area, including that of the largest one, Hawaii. And this, my friends, is where we will leave James Cook and his expedition for today. Cook had stumbled on Hawaii, arguably the most significant discovery in his distinguished career. So that is it. Next time we will talk about Cook's stay in Hawaii and then get you to the west coast of North America. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find more great shows, including Settle the Stars and The Sit Down.